0: From CNU 23 in Dallas, this is the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I've got... Uh, with me here at CNU 23 in Dallas, kind of the hottest thing going right now, uh, the two tactical urbanism guys. I've got uh, Anthony Garcia and Mike Lydon sitting across the table for me. Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast,
1: guys. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good to be here.
0: I, 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 I'm so excited. You, you guys are, I, I think, and this is my opinion, You can, you, I, I'm sure you're, hum, you're humble, you'll argue with this, but it seems like you guys are the hottest thing right now on this ticket. The tactical urbanism book just came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a ton of buzz around it. There has been for years kind of building, but now there's this crescendo because the book is out and people are starting to embrace this. What's the excitement that you guys feel coming here to, to Dallas?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it is it is exciting. I mean, we've been uh you know, all along the way building this audience with the online guides that were for free, and yeah. we did four of those. So, you know, personally, and I think Tony might have felt the same way, and writing a full-length book was the cat kind of out of the bag. You know, had we already exhausted the audience right. and the interest and the excitement, right. and would the book actually sell, or people say, well, that's kind of old hat. Um Of course, the book, you know, brought a whole lot more information and ideas to the table, and to be here um at CNU is great because really this booklet and this book itself came out of early, you know, collaborations and meetings with CNURs and next-geners. So I remember um, it's kind of like bringing it back home uh, to where it all started and that the book's out there now is great and it's it's doing well and we're excited about it.
2: Yeah, and it's really refreshing also to still encounter people that don't know about it and that are, you know, just as amazed as we all were 5 years ago discovering the idea. So I that's something that whenever we speak and we go and talk to people that that really strikes me still is that it's still fresh for people even if it's not fresh for us still.
0: yeah yeah I, I, how was the i mean how exhausting was putting the book together oh it was exhausting yeah it was exhausting well because we have our
2: practice and we right. do a lot of community activities so it was yet another thing and we kept on delaying and delaying and um finally you know we just sort of said this is our deadline we we
1: um, set yeah. a date and that was it. It took a, a year to write it, a little less than a year. Um, we had thought it'd take us six months. That was insane. <laughs> we always think things are going to go really quickly because <laughs> they should go quickly. Yeah. Uh, and we, so we, yeah, we did delay the book twice. I mean, fortunately, just for a few months at a time. And, you know, Island was close to their, um, wit's end just because they hadn't a lot of, um, uh, island is the publisher island press right. had a lot of support and interest behind the book and really wanted to get it out there and we committed to doing it in six months and we just we couldn't we had too many other things going on yeah yeah so it was well, a lot of late nights well it's a it's a great book
0: uh i you know the i haven't i have to admit i haven't gotten through the whole thing but the case studies are awesome mm. the the graphics are awesome and I love the picture at the very end of you. It's just, yeah. it, it is a, it's such a nice, like, uh, you know, touch to the, the book. It's a very classy book. I, I, it's funny because we've, we've had these debates a little bit online, uh, and you and I got joined in one the other day where all oh, this stuff is cute, but I, I don't like the unsanctioned stuff. And I, I don't like, you know, it just bothers me. And that's coming from someone of i uh, I'll just say like a, the boomer generation, the, the very, uh, kind of inside the machine voice, I love, I mean, you guys are seeing a lot of enthusiasm around your work. Talk a little bit about, about that end of the spectrum, the, the the fact that there's a lot of people out there embracing this who are not your standard, typical city engineer, city planner, stodgy, right. give me a tie and a, a, a coffee.
1: Right. Well, I think we need, um, in our practice, we've recognized through the research and writing of the book that... There is so much value to bottom up and top down, and there's plenty of resources if you're going to work top down, and again, you, you need that approach in some places, but there's very few resources and permission to act if you're, if you're trying to do things from the bottom up or have few, very few resources at hand. So for, for, for us, I think, the, uh, the book is, is enabling more of this activity. It's inspiring some people to go out and plant a garden in their front yard as opposed to mowing their lawn. You know, it's inspiring them to try and fix their street. Um, taking action with their neighbors, uh, very locally. And I think that's a really wonderful thing that people are getting turned on to. And if our book helps give them permission or ideas to do that, then great. Awesome. Now, now you guys, this is all you do is write tactical urbanism
0: books, right? You don't. Yeah, right. (laughs) You guys run the Street Plans Collaborative. And are working Tony all, knows, all over Tony the, runs the CBS Tony CBS runs it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I want to ask about a, a, a couple of projects that you guys are working on because they're real innovative and they're stuff that I think people would be very interested. W- what you guys do is interesting because you're not a traditional firm. You, you really have embraced what, what I would call a real value-added approach. Mm. Talk a little bit about the, the uh, emerging public space guide that you guys are working on in, in San Francisco.
1: Sure. So th- this is a project with the we're working with the city, um, the planning department, and for some of your listeners, they may know that San Francisco has developed a number of very innovative public space types, um, delivering public spaces very, very quickly and inexpensively in the last five years. And I think they they got to this uh, point where they want to look back a little bit and then start looking forward on how, what how do these spaces evolve? How do they get managed? You know, what's the stewardship model? Um, what's working in other cities. And so they hired us, our firm Street Plans, and Julie Flynn, who is in our San Francisco office, is managing this project. Um, you know, so Julie's been doing a lot of the research and scanning nationally on what are the best models out there for quickly delivering temporary spaces, whether that's um, something that's just a space that happens monthly on weekends or if it's a full plaza that's being developed um, using temporary paint and other you know, temporary and short-term landscape. Uh, materials. And so we've looked nationally and then we're taking this and trying to apply it to San Francisco saying, okay, here's what you have and what's working here. Here's what other cities have um, that are working well there. What can we learn from other cities and how could we calibrate that to give you some direction moving forward? And not just for the city as a stewardship. In fact, the, the guide is geared towards neighborhoods, Neighborhood activists, um, nonprofits, those kinds of organizations, bids, um, who need these tools uh, and, and they need new policies and frameworks to allow them to create, but then more importantly, steward and activate and program these public spaces in which there's hundreds of new public space types, not types, but hundreds of new public spaces in San Francisco that have emerged. And so it's really exciting. And for us, it was great to look around the country and see who's doing what. Right. Uh, what, what is, uh, it's the thing that I find the most interesting about. Your work
0: is the way that it involves just what all for lack of a better term to say regular people the 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 crossover between not just people at city hall but but actually involving people out on the street what 's the interaction that you get because you work with both city officials and the public How, how do those relationships you guys kind of broker those? what what are some of the struggles in trying to broker some of those relationships as you enter into a city because the city hall people get freaked out with the public right, right? right. and the public's distrustful of the city hall people right. in many ways yep. and those are not unreasonable you know reactions to each other right. what's your role in brokering that that bridge between the two
2: well you know it puts us in in a lot of uh, tough situations with our clients especially when our clients are municipalities that are not used to being as transparent as they would like to be or as they claim to be you know we, we just this morning had a, an email interaction with a constituent in miami beach who staff has told me repeatedly you cannot reach out to the constituents you can't <laughs> you can't email directly or respond to their inquiries and what we've told them repeatedly is that it's a central part of our practice to interact with the public we're doing you a service we're helping you right. communicate with the community because the community automatically thinks that City Hall is doing something nefarious. There's a lot of cynicism about what government does or does not do. And so just responding to emails in a timely manner, that is huge. And and city staff, sometimes they just don't get
0: it. Right. We're trying to bridge that gap. It's a little paralyzing because as city government, you know, you have a council, which is many voices, right? Right. Right. Uh, You have a staff, which is supposedly responsible to this many voices. Right. And you have the public, which is a, you know, many, many, many voices. And when you try to do message control, uh, a lot of that communication stuff that's just a normal part of, of life tends to break down.
2: It really does. And then and it leads to people drawing conclusions, conspiracy theories on behalf of the general public. And it doesn't need to be that way. There's no reason. And one of the things that, that we find or that I've noticed is has a lot to do with um, – the city manager form of government because the city manager is the head of the corporation of the city what our clients always tell us is you can't go talk directly to the commissioners because that's the board the commissioner has to talk directly to the city manager so it it puts a lot of distance between the people and the people who are making the decisions right
0: right Talk a little bit about the, the bike master plan and the street work that you're doing down in Miami. Because sure. I, I, again, another one of these, I think, outside of the box place, you, you're, you guys are a small, lean, tactical kind of firm, and you're working in a city like Miami doing some really, really important stuff. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Well, I mean, this is a, a citywide bicycle master plan for Miami Beach, which is uh, you know arguably one of the places in the state of Florida that has the highest bicycle use and pedestrian um, activity. Right. We're trying to layer into the project uh, tactical ideas about delivery, about how they use their streets and about the process that they go about um, getting new projects out into the world. And And it's been really tough because the city's just not used to thinking about temporary anything. They're not used to thinking about um, rolling things out in small steps. It's all about the big mega projects. So um, that's one of the challenges, I think, with that project. But we're really hopeful that that they're going to adopt some of the the ideas that we have included in the report. There's a lot of, uh, protected bike lanes that we're, you know, pushing for because South Florida has no protected bike lanes. There's, they're all, you know, sharrows and regular bike lanes. How do you,
0: how do you approach a city like Miami that, that is inherently, you know, inherently auto oriented right. to almost the extreme? Right. Uh, there are very few places in Miami that are real welcoming. I mean, the transit system is really tough. Right. Uh, the bike infrastructure you've got. How do you approach an, an overwhelming situation like that? Because there's a lot of people listening who are in cities that say, we, we have no hope, yet here you are right. living in Miami, right? Right. And, you know, bringing this there. How do, you, how do you start to tackle a problem that huge?
2: Well, you know, it's really tough. I think in Miami we're facing a, a culture change where there's – a significant number of people that have been educated elsewhere, they move back to Miami, they see how other cities function, and they're bringing that experience back with them. So it's a, a slow change for Miami, but it, Miami Beach specifically is not like a lot of other places in, in the United States because it has such a, a great, dense network of, of compact urbanism that is pre-World War II. So there is um, there's already fabric there. And part of our strategy for Miami Beach has been listen guys, you're actually not as bad as you think you are. The, the prevailing thought is Dade County is is all about you know, uh, car use. But actually, if you look at South Beach, the numbers of South Beach, you have 40% of your population taking transit, uh, biking, or walking. That's not a drop in the bucket. That's not 5% the way that you might have it in, in other cities. So you have a lot of good things to build off of. So look at the good things that are already working and build off of those. Don't focus on... On the auto-oriented,
1: right, you know. and I think a lot of it too has to be um, through the experience of getting out there and actually biking and walking. And so, you know, when you know when Manny Diaz was mayor, uh, when I was living in Miami, and there was a bunch of advocates, we got together and we got Bike Miami Days launched, which was an open streets event. So one day, close down the streets in the downtown, get people out there actually using the streets in a different manner, see their city from a different perspective, and that happened for several months while Mayor Diaz was still uh, in in office. But You know, since then, they've done maybe just a couple of them over the last, what, seven or eight years. Um, You know, Miami Beach does a monthly bike ride with the community, but it's not really geared towards getting more people out there to experience the streets beyond just cycling. So for us, I think part of this process and what I would like to start to see happen in South Florida and the cities down there is more political leadership around, look, here's a vision for where we're going the long term, and the very first thing we can do starting tomorrow is this. And we're going to start doing this with frequency and build up interest, build up demand, build up experiences with people so they know what the change could be like in the long term to support a lot of this infrastructure investment that will need to happen over time, but needs to start very incrementally so we learn from it. Right, right. Let me ask you about kind of the other end of the spectrum,
0: um, Ponderay, Idaho. I, I, I've been to Ponderay now a couple times, once with you, Mike, and you know done some work there. Th- this is the the kind of the opposite of Miami in terms of density and in terms of place and in terms of the, the kind of challenges they have yet a lot of the same lessons, boy, look where people are struggling and try to make that a little bit better. We're looking at paths through the woods saying, here's where people are hacking their city right, right. now. Right. Literally hacking with like a machete. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk about the experience of Ponderay right. and why that's an important part of what you guys are doing as well.
1: Yeah, Ponderay is a fascinating place. Um, for those who don't know the northern panhandle of Idaho, it's, it's very, very rural. Um, but Ponderay has, is, is, next to a very, um, nice town, about 5,000 people, has a main street environment on a lake, mountains around it. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, Ponderay has kind of been the recipient of the land uses that, uh, Sandpoint doesn't want. So they've got all the big box stores. They've got this big highway widening project that has completely changed the scale of moving around their city. Um, and they're cut off from their lakefront. There's uh, 400 feet of right-of-way, um, a railroad track, active rail line, that they can't. Te- people can't technically legally cross to get to their lakefront. So there's all these these, these challenges um, in this very small town, which, by the way, has doubled in population in the last, was it 10 years, last census. Um, um, they learned that their population went from 500 to over 1,000. Yeah. So they've seen this little spurt of growth, um, and the challenge is how do we get people to think about a different kind of place than being the place where people come from around the region to shop. Um, How can it be more active and walkable and how can they get access to their lake? And what are the, the tools and the projects at a very, very incremental scale that the town can support? And I think it is things like people hacking through the woods and making these connections. Well, the city can come in behind that and help formalize some of those paths or find new opportunities to make those connections in the way that people are already drawing the lines for them. Right. It, it, this is one of those places where,
0: like you said, it, they, they get everything Sandpoint doesn't want. Sandpoint is a very nice northern Idaho town, rather walkable. Fairly affluent. Fairly affluent, yeah. So, uh, Padre has got the, the Walmart, the Home Depot... The, the big hotels along the, the roadway, yet they also have some of the deepest poverty of the whole area. This stuff isn't really helping them out all that much. Right. How do we? How does part of what you're doing really affect people who are maybe a little more disadvantaged or or not quite tapping into the, right. the affluence of? the standard American development pattern the way others do?
1: Well, people, aren't, um, uh, people who are uh, underserved are not going to be able to um, take the time necessarily to come to planning meetings and envision the future, right? So a lot of the work that we try to do in Ponderate and Elsewhere is take some of these ideas and put it out onto the street so people can see what the good and bad, what the changes could be. You know, what they're, They could share their opinions very quickly as they are walking to work or driving to work. In the middle of their daily flow, Um, so we worked on a project. Uh, Tony and I were there, and um, and Jim Kuman from uh, Strong Towns was there, and we just went to a um, a senior home and listened to the challenges that the residents had at the senior home. And they said, "Well, we have a hard time crossing the street where the where the sidewalk is. Uh, The crosswalk was faded away Um, on the side of the street where the senior home is. There is no." sidewalk that gets them to where the shopping is so they have to cross this three-lane fairly busy street and so the project was well how do we today not a year from now but today try something that shows them that this could be a more safe intersection for them to cross and so it was going down the street to the construction supply Uh, store, which is there, and we got a bunch of materials and spent a couple hundred dollars, and for the afternoon made... A couple straw bales. Yeah, a couple straw bales and some cones, and uh, we used some temporary paint, and um, we all together went out there, and we just put it in the ground, this this median in the middle of the street, and we painted the crosswalk so that people who we met with briefly were able to articulate some of the challenges, and they saw very quickly that same afternoon, we responded to it. And a lot of that needs to be done, I think, in you know, the bigger visioning projects that we're doing with Ponderay, the longer-term planning needs to be connected back to that scale of action so that people are seeing things getting done, and that can inform how the longer-term infrastructure gets invested and where the priorities will be. Mm-hmm. Um, that median um, pedestrian refuge and crosswalk at that intersection, that's super viable. So we're going to include that in our plan recommendations that are due at the end of the summer. So that how that gets informed, and we got people involved in seeing it, in their daily life, as opposed to saying, "Come to this meeting across town at six thirty at night."
0: How how is how is that notion of experimenting, changing the way cities are, are are being built? I mean, I know we're in the early stages of this, but it seems like there's some really good case studies now and some really good examples of boy, we go out and we spend uh, Stuck Bertha right now is the right. is the kind of key Seattle. you know yeah. in Seattle the idea that we're going to spend billions of dollars on this huge project. You guys are out there hacking this thing on nickels and dimes and showing what the next increment is. How empowering is that for a city, short on funds, to be able to get stuff off the ground quickly?
2: Well, I mean, I think that cities are slowly figuring it out because of the work that we're doing. I, I haven't seen a city really adopt it as a, a large city, a large American city, but we're even seeing uh, large companies adopt this idea. Right. So you have, uh, we're working with, uh, as a pro bono non-profit uh, project, we're working with the Florida East Coast Railway um, Corporation to transform one of their abandoned railways into uh, a park and a trail. And so, you know, we're, we've been negotiating with them for the last year about the price, and I'm just starting to sell them the, on the idea on, of uh, a temporary activation. And they really, they're starting to really get how powerful that could be as a marketing effort for them to, to be able to convert this land. So I think it's trickling up. Slowly,
1: yeah. yeah, I think as well, um, in a lot of the towns and cities we wind up working in, that's the only way to work. It's the only option. I mean, stop thinking about the $10 million corridor project when you don't really know where that $10 million is coming from, and you don't even know if the result of that is going to work well. So start with the, say, $10,000 to $100,000 project. Try some of these things out in a temporary manner. See how it's working, and that builds confidence not only in the changes that we're advocating for to make places more civil, for people, it's safer, um, but it, it allows them to think through, okay, this is actually a project that's worth investing in when we have the dollars and resources to do it, or it gives us justification to invest in it, as opposed to, we think it's good, we have a plan, uh, I guess if we get the right grant dollars flowing in, we should build it. And I think that's important to think about that interim step.
2: And when you think about the last, the, how, you know, we stumbled on, on these ideas through the Great Recession, the lack of resources at the municipal level really forced all of us to start thinking about that. I don't think that municipalities have caught up yet. They still operate in the the project mill type of mentality where they have their yearly budget and they've got to they've spend this money by the end of the year. Right. So, and we see that all the time, trying to step cities away from that mentality, I think that that's going to be the challenge. Of the and it's also year.
1: shifting resources. I mean, how many millions of dollars? I learned yesterday from a colleague that um, a grant of $5 million is being spent to plan a quarter for probably the 15th time um, in a <laughs> northeastern city. <laughs> how right? many times have we heard that? So yeah. why don't we take $5 million and actually build something with it that you put in those plants? Find you know the elements of it that, that $5 million goes a long way right. in some of these projects. Start making safety fixes now to these terrible corridors and streets. And that can then, over time, uh, morph with the permanent infrastructure. So I, I also think it's about how we. Like Tony talks about the project mill. Um, here's our budget every year. We have to spend it, and most of the spending might be in planning. And why well, don't we just hit the brakes sometimes on that and actually focus on implementation? And yeah.
2: part of that is, is because they lose that money at the end of the cycle. Maybe right. if it's a grant from the federal government, if they don't spend that money, it's gone. So they'll spend it on whatever. Right, large,
0: right. Tony, Mike, congratulations on the success of the book and, and, and you know, the inspiring work that you guys are doing. Thanks so much for being on the podcast and enjoy the rest of CNU. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Great Chuck. to be here. Thanks, Thanks so much. one big pothole right now bill 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 that's
2: a
1: story chuck Morone, this has been fascinating
0: oh, City!
1: i like you i like your vision of the of the world the united nations earth summit Agenda
0: 21! Yeah!